Amen, and good morning, Gospel Hope. How are you? Good morning. Good, good, good. I just am reminded this morning of how much I love in-person worship. It's one of the few places that people who can't really sing get to really sing. I don't know of any other environment where you can pull it off and people not look at you, right? Um, I mean, we all know secretly who we are, the non-singers. I'm one of them. Um, people who can sing really well. I watch them and I'm just so jealous because they have all of these like hand gestures and facial expressions that they incorporate in what they're doing and make it seem so powerful, you know, and then, you know, but we have more fun, the non-singers, because that's when we get to work on our hand gestures. Otherwise, we're focused on what we sound like, but once you remove that element because we're singing in a group, then we can just focus on, you know, what we're doing with our hands and stuff like that. It's awesome. I think Bernard, where's Bernard? Bernard's one of the non-singers. He's got this, like... He's got this thing he was doing, uh, like, doing, he was really getting after it. He's just really worked on his choreography or whatever, and he, he had, like, these two-hand praise pull-ups he was doing. It's like an old-school R&B group. He was like, ah. and I was like, yeah, yeah. I was like, I, I would try that, but I don't want to seem like I'm copying. i got to make up my own non-singer hand gestures. And then Jalen goes, all right, just the voices, and that's when the non-singers, we have to kind of, like, you know, <laughs> put our hands in our pockets now not going to do that. Amen. Amen. All right. So, well, hey, I'm excited to be here this morning and uh, happy Father's Day uh, to all of you. We're going to um, go before the Father and ask for his help to unpack today's text uh, from the book of Colossians. And so I um, hope you are uh, ready and uh, eager to hear what the Bible says about this unique and wonderful role of fatherhood. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, we're thankful to you this morning for every opportunity to gather amongst your people to worship you. Yes, to sing, whether we can do it or not, but just to honor you with the integrity of heart that we're trying, Lord God, to cry out to you. We thank you, Lord God, that you do, this not, you do not disqualify us if we are not amongst the most gifted of worshipers. You just want to hear our voices. We thank you for that, oh God. We thank you, Father God, that you have um, allowed us to know you through the unique um, provision of your son, Jesus Christ. And we just ask that as we walk through your word today, that you would open our eyes afresh um, to not only, Lord God, notions of fatherhood, but also, Lord God, there are gospel implications. And so, um, Lord God, would you help us, um, free us from all distractions and anything else that would rob us of uh, uh, receiving from you. And uh, Lord God, just help us to hear, be with us. Uh, this is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as you know, if you have not been with us, or you have, we are currently plowing through the book of 1 Corinthians as our normal series called Messy, but we're taking a break from Messy today, and we're going to take a look at uh, the topic of fatherhood, but through the lens of the book of Colossians. And so uh, Colossians is an interesting book. It belongs to the, the family of what we know as the Pauline epistles, but it also has another unique tag, which is also called one of the twin epistles, because it shares a lot in common, same DNA, same birthday, same author, and similar themes with also the book of Ephesians. If you read the two of them together, you would see a lot of similarities. Uh, if you read both Colossians and Ephesians, some of the thematic and theological similarities that you will see is that the front half of the book is spent building a great description and a case for who Christ is, who God is, who we are in him. And then the latter half of the book spends a great deal of time hammering down exactly what that means for us. How do we use it? So if you were reading, um, again, the first half of either one, it's like who we are in him 
and then the back half is what, are we, what, are we, what does it mean? This is an important notion to consider when thinking about the book of Colossians as the Colossian saints have been recently impacted with culturally something called asceticism. And uh, in this, uh, ascetic, the, the aesthetics wanted people to really focus on being hypervigilant about cosmic and high things, things that are spiritual in nature, but then kind of thumb their noses at things that are physical, practical, and low. In other words, they believe that the physical body and all things physical and material were inherently deplorable, inherently dirty. They had challenges understanding the incarnation of Christ because here it is, the one true living and holy God has occupied a body. How is that, how is that so? And so they really had challenges fully appreciating the incarnation of Christ, which also has some very dubious gospel implications if they reject that. Uh, the Colossian saints um, also... Uh, would have had challenges just understanding uh, the unique nature of Jesus. And so the uh, Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time in the front half of the book, specifically in chapters 1 and 2, giving us some of the most beautiful uh, and, and high Christology the Bible has ever seen. I mean, only rivaled by that of uh, Hebrews chapter 1, but it's just really high, really top-shelf stuff describing Jesus as co-eternal with the Father, also uh, being responsible for creation, being the head of the church, being preeminent. That's the number one word you can't get away from if you're reading the book of Colossians, that Christ is preeminent above all things, cosmically, right? So if you're into the cosmic stuff, if you're into the high and lofty ideas, Paul says Jesus is above all that, and now none of that stuff was even made without him. Jesus, he made it. He is preeminent. And then the apostle Paul throws this curveball, and he goes, and guess what? Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He takes all of this high shelf theology and puts it in a physical package and says, so if you, if you enjoy the high ranking, majestic, cosmic, eternal, all powerful Jesus, you can't enjoy him without also enjoying the deeply practical, resident, local, intimate Jesus. And so then he spends the rest of the book showing us how this high shelf Jesus is applied in some just deeply personal places like the home. And so we have at the back half of the book a house call right here in Colossians chapter 3 verses 17 and following. And whatever you do, do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, here's a house call, right? Wives, submit your, um, to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not uh, be harsh with them. Children, obey uh, your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke the children unless uh, they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey uh, every, in everything those who are your earthly masters, and but in no way with eye service or just to be people pleasers, but do it with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward, and you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there will be no partiality. Still part of that same paragraph, he says, Pastors, treat your bondservants uh, justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So he literally writes, he, he says, Here, here's how you take all of this beautiful top shelf stuff about Jesus and bring it within the context of the local household. 
understand what the Sunday morning situation would have looked like during the time that this book was delivered or this letter was delivered to the Colossian saints. They would have stood up on a Sunday morning and they would have read from an Old Testament passage knowing that that information was part of the original canon of God. Someone potentially with one of the speaking gifts would have stood up, be it a prophet or a pastor or a teacher, would have maybe delivered a word to, to, uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, filling them according to the measure of faith, according to what it teaches us in the book of Romans on how to effectively apply that. And then they would have at the same time, somebody would have followed them and stood up and read the entirety of the book of Colossians during the, the course. Of, uh, of, the, of the Sunday service. So while reading this whole book, all four chapters before the people, think about this. No children's ministry, right? Because children, uh, 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 husbands, wives, it's not, it's not separated out like you're, if you've ever been into a mosque before where the men and women are in different rooms. No. Men and women, husband and wives, servants and children occupying the same, uh, occupying the same rows right together in these churches. Some of which likely meeting inside of homes, if not in some other facility, but it would have been deeply intimate. And here it is, this high theology is now is about to be given some real local implementation for the household. And the person reading the book is not just giving out these really deep theological nuggets, they are turning their attention to distinct families. Can you imagine, maybe if they were a little bit aggressive like me, they're actually pointing at people. Right? In the audience, wives, husbands, kids, masters, bond servants, sitting on the same row together. They would have been pointing and gesturing and saying, this is how you apply all these things we just heard earlier in the book. Well, what exactly are we looking for this morning? Well, when we look at the house call, this place where this high theology gets deep practicality, we're looking at uh, uh, four portraits, I believe, four portraits of biblical or faithful fatherhood. Four portraits of faithful fatherhood. Four portraits of faithful fatherhood, I believe, can be found in this stretch of verses that I've just read for you. And I believe that as we see these four portraits of faithful fatherhood, there's something that we can learn for ourselves as contemporary believers. Here's what we're going to learn. Number one, um, we, are either, we are either in our households creating a standard or some sense of starvation within our families. This message is applicable to every person in the room, whether you are a father or not, and here's why. Because every one of us has had a father, regardless of his performance. Every one of us has been influenced by a father, regardless of his performance. He may have been the greatest father of all time in terms of what you think, or he may have been the worst of father. You may not even know his name, but all of us have been influenced by a father or the lack thereof. So this message is important for all because to the extent that our earthly fathers fulfilled in a robust way or underperformed in any kind of way in these roles, it shaped us for the rest of our lives. And here's how it shaped us. If your father set the standard, if your father did well in these areas, he created a standard that you grew to look for. Whether you are male or female, if you are looking for a mate and someone that might be the future father of your children, your father, how he, how he lived out this role, created a standard in what you look for. Or if he underperformed, he created a starvation in you for what you crave or what you long for. So fathers, when your daughters come home with someone on the front porch and you can't figure out how in the world she picked this joker, <laughs> ask yourself, what standard did I create or how did I starve her that she would long for that? If you go over to your son's house and you can't believe how he's running his household, before you 
go crazy. Ask yourself, where did he get this standard? Or where might I have starved him in this regard? This message is applicable to everyone. Not just in terms of romantic relationships, but even for young men and women who go out into life. The way we respond to leadership within the marketplace, the way we, the way we latch ourselves on to friendships, the way we look for leadership in pastors, many young men who did not have a father who robustly filled in many of these blanks at all find themselves longing for pastors and other brothers in the faith to fill in this. They, they, they are starved for these kinds of influences and look for others very locally to fill in the blanks. The same happens for sisters. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how great of a dad or how uh, absent your dad may have been, fathers, uh, this message is important to you and for you. Not just as an FYI, but it will also provide you with a framework for maybe some of your longings and the things that you look for in life. And so for us as fathers, I happen to be one of them, we, we are either creating a standard or we are creating a sense of starvation in the lives of those that we lead as fathers. And so I want to just take a look at only four of the, 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 the roles of the hats of fathers, only four that I could find or see readily right here in, in, in Colossians chapter 3, only four that I believe that we should uh, be careful to live up to. And if you have not lived up to these, start now. If you have not lived up to these, start discipling other students. If you have not, if you have been the quote-unquote the victim of these not having been looked up to, start now looking to the text to know what you ought to be looking for in the lives of those who brand themselves as fathers. We say it here at Gospel Hope church we are not doing life like a family because we are a family therefore if you see someone living up in these roles robustly celebrate them if you see them underperforming support them come alongside them pray for them this is how we do life as a family and this is why this matters this message matters to all regardless of where you are on the spectrum of having a great father not having a father never being a father never will be a father it is all for us because we are all part of the great household of God so, taking a look at today's text more squarely, uh, here are the four portraits that I'm going to be sharing that will help you with your note-taking. Fathers are priests. We are priests. We occupy a role of priest. I'll explain as we unpack the text. We are priests. We have functions of a priest. We also function as producers. Function as producers. Function as producers. We also function as prophets. We function as prophets, and we also function as providers. These are the four portraits of faithful fatherhood that I want to share with you. Now, here's the deal. Because the Bible, because the Bible places these distinctions on us as fathers, it is, no, it is a non-negotiable that these roles are there to be lived up to. The question is whether or not we live up to them. So it's not as if you get to pick and choose like, oh, I'm just going to be a good priest and I'm going to let that roll through the rest. No, no, no. Our hearts desire all four of these roles be beautifully fulfilled in us, in our families. The Bible calls all four of these roles to be beautifully fulfilled. And, and some of us are stronger and weaker than others. And where we are stronger or weaker, uh, excellent or negligent, we create, again, a standard or some sense of starvation in the lives of those that are following our lead. And it affects our lives in perpetuity. Um, and it does, and it affects the way we view the Lord as well. So let's keep it moving here. What about this idea, this notion of priests? Let's look squarely at the first verse, verse 17. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's everything. Words, deeds, whether you are a wife, whether you are children, whether you are a mother, whether you are a servant, whether you are a master. You see that? Everything and everybody, words and deeds, we are called to do them in a way that we to do them in the name of the Lord or under the Lord's authority with thanksgiving toward the Father. This is the first call or the first imperative of this passage. So what does this mean for priests, so to speak? Well, regardless of who's in view in this text, if everything is to be done in this way, then the person who is the head of the household, which is the father, has a responsibility to make sure that that's happening. Like in our homes, we are not all solo practitioners, right? Even though we have our own rooms and we have our own TV and we have our own terms, and we have our own bedtimes and our own curfews and all that stuff. No, there is an accountability that fathers would lead in such a way that we are making sure that this is happening, that everything we do in word or deed is done in the name of the Lord Jesus and giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what does it mean for us as priests? It means that we are committed to creating a context where we see everything in light of our relationship with the Lord. It's not always easy. We sometimes think of sitting down and giving thanks for our meal. Oh, that's obviously Jesus-y stuff. But everything that happens in our homes, in word or deed, the priest is responsible for making sure, for, for the, the, the priest, the father, committed to creating a context where we see everything in light of our relationship with the Lord. Consider, if you will, the example of Job. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, many of us focus on him when we want to find out how to deal with suffering or we just avoid the book altogether because it is scary. But here is what the, the, the first five verses of Job say, and it's very important to see the priesthood of fatherhood. You ready? There was a man that lived in the land of Uz named Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This is in the pre-temple era, by the way, so this is going to be an important key. There is no formal central temple, right? This is pre-temple. Follow me carefully. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels, five yoke of oxen, five female donkeys, and had very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all people in the east. His sons used to go out and hold feasts in the house, each, of, uh, each one on his day, and they would send an, invite, uh, and send an invite to their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning uh, uh, and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. He's talking about sons and daughters. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus, Job did this continually. He did this continually. So here is Job in the pre-temple era, right? No formal nation of Israel exists. And this man still has a posture of moving like a priest for his household, actively interceding and going before God on his family's behalf. And guess what? If you notice, the seven sons and the three daughters have their own households. They are not kids. Did you see that? It said that they would host dinners and the dad is still concerned about their relationship with the Lord even though that they're grown and gone. And the Bible gives us this cameo of Job and says, oh, by the way, if you missed it in the first two verses, he was, he was upright. He was doing it right. Right? So he's someone that we can look at as our example. 
So here it is, ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, brothers and sisters. Fathers, fathers, we model the work of priests. We, we model confession and compassion and intercession in a way that gives families a high view of prayer and a clear view of the high priest. Fathers live life in such a way that we are modeling confession because that's the business of a priest is to represent the people before God. Doesn't mean that they can't represent themselves, but the father takes it upon himself to represent the people under his call, under his, under, in his household, to represent them before God. And he leads by modeling through a lifestyle, what priests do, confession and compassion and intercession in a way that gives families a high view of prayer and an even clearer view of the high priest. Why a high view of prayer? Families need to know that, that prayer works. And so much of that work has been uh, uh, outsourced to grandmas and older people within families, unfortunately. Families need to know. Children need to know. And they need to see their fathers. They need to see the strongest and the most robust man that they've ever met bend his knee to the almighty God. They need to see that notion. They need to see that movement. And they also need to know that this man who leads them can actually go talk to God and stuff gets done. Fathers lead. They are priests in their household. They model confession. Well, if they're modeling confession, that means that the children also see that this is a man who, who is not perfect, but he is always striving for perfection before the Lord because he is quick to go and deal with his own sins before the Lord, even as he is representing the family before the Lord. So it's not as if he is positioning himself as a spiritual superman who does not need confession himself. But one of the marquee uh, 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 moments of the high priestly life is given to us in the book of Hebrews when it talks about Jesus as the ultimate high priest. In chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, the Bible says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. One of the markers of being a priest in the home and of, uh, is not only one who carries themselves by way of a high standard before God, but who is always able to be compassionate and sympathetic and understanding. So oftentimes as fathers, we can try to promote high performance through provocation rather than through sympathy and compassion. The Bible calls us to balance. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. This is such an important role and notion for fathers because so often those who are following our lead have only seen us, quote unquote, at our best. And they rarely get a sneak preview into our burden and into our fight and the stuff over which we have had to gain victory. And they believe that the standard of fathers is one that's too high for them that they themselves to reach. But they need to know that they have a priest who can be sympathetic. Sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, talking about Jesus. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time, or grace to help in the time of need. So fathers, while they are modeling compassion, confession, and intercession, are really clearing the way for their children to not only see the efficacy of prayer and engagement with God, but also clearing the way that they might feel bold to make their own approach, that they might boldly go to the high priest who is Jesus, who has gone before them. 
So all we're doing as priests of the home is not trying to, again, show up as the buck stops here. I'm the biggest, uh, baddest spiritual superhero in the home. I'm just trying to direct traffic, model, and show you the way to see the ultimate high priest. Fathers are priests in the home. Priests in the home. Verses 18 and 19 have something else to show us. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and not be harsh with them. And do not be harsh with them. In school, they always teach us that when you see the Bible uh, and principles in these, in these books you're looking at, you're listening to one side of a phone conversation. There's obviously something, information that has been received that prompted these words. And so perhaps there is a tendency for husbands to speak harshly to their wives. And perhaps there's been a, a tendency for wives to not be willing to submit to their husbands. Well, no wonder. They, they're not being loved as Christ loved the church. But the second idea here in verses 18 and 19 is that we are producers. We're not only priests, but we are producers. Now, many of you may have thought that this was about our performance on our jobs. No, we are producers in the Hollywood sense, in the movie industry sense. We as fathers are responsible for producing motion pictures that project the will of God against the screen of daily life. In other words, when, when our children or those in our household see us see our wives submitting, the mothers of our children submitting, they see this weird gesture and behavior that is anti and countercultural, and then they see us loving her like Christ loved the church, we are actually producing this motion picture. We're saying, oh, that's what that dry, crusty, cringy, old, archaic stuff looks like in action and in person. Oh, I thought that was for times past. Oh, that's what that looks like in 2021. Oh, I don't have to water down the scriptures. I can take the scriptures at face value, vividly applied into my life. That's what we're doing when we love our wives as Christ loved the church. We're, we're giving our children as fathers this beautiful portrayal of the, what that looks like. And so we're allowing them to see this great movie called Righteous Romance. Because they're hearing about romance in every other institution and quarter of their lives. If they want to hear about romance, they've heard about it at school. They've heard about it in the movies. They've seen it on Netflix. Everybody's got their own iteration of romance. But what about the biblical iteration of romance? Have they seen that most vivid portrayal right here in their own home in the way that the father is loving the wife, the loving the mother, and the way the mother is responding? We're painting these biblical, these biblical vivid portraits. We're not only painting a portrait of righteous romance, but if you march down through the text where it says, children, obey your parents and everything, we're also helping to paint a picture of the tale of two houses. Not the tale of two cities, but the tale of two houses. Jesus was the first one to tell us about the tale of two houses over in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27, when he said, anybody who obeys my words is building a house on a foundation that when the winds and the storms and the rains and the flood, all of the environmental external elements come to beat on that house, it will stand because it is built on a noteworthy God-trusting foundation. But then it tells a story about another person who also built the house on the premise of disobedience and faithlessness, and it was like a person who built the house that will definitely be blown down. The thing that the two houses have in common is that they both had to endure cultural headwinds. 
And so when we are growing up in families and fathers have created a culture of obeying God and our home is built on biblical principles, we're going through the same stuff that Tommy and June and Jade and Sally and Quan, right, and Aretha. Our home is going through the same storms that their home is going through. But man, look at how our house is standing. Why, Daddy? Why is it different over here? Not that we're better, but because this is what we believe. This is how we weather storms. And so the simple beauty of obedience is another movie that we're painting a picture for in our household. So then when we ask our kids to do something, obedience no longer sounds like a drill sergeant to a subordinate. It's like this dude has shown us what happens when you obey one that is above you and it has beautiful and blessed benefits. We're going to obey God because we want to see, we want to obey dad because we want to see God's blessings worked out in our household. It's not only a tale of two houses or a righteous romance, but it's also seeing worship as a part of my work ethic. So oftentimes we view our work as a, as a detraction or a detachment from our faith. It's just this place where we go to make money. Then we huddle up and our, have our holy huddle in our homes. But no, look at what the Bible is doing. If people are watching us, this house call shows how fathers who may have been bond servants are responding to their bosses and fathers who may have been masters are responding and treating those under their employ. So, so fathers who may be occupying these roles across the sociological uh, uh, demographic spectrum, kids are watching what pictures are they painting. And then he says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not for men. Therefore, whether it is somebody cutting the lawn or doing laundry, sewing a button on a jacket, buying a new set of Jordans, hammering up shingles, no matter what you're doing, mopping floors, unplunging toilets, are we creating a context where our family can say everything that we do, we do it heartily as unto the Lord? Because we know we have a, not an undercover boss, but an eternal boss who is watching. But fathers... We're the one who must offer the most vivid images of what it looks like to both love God and love neighbor. We are the ones who are called to do this. I can imagine that I've completely sucked the air out of the room because as we, we look at our fatherhood resume and our performance, I don't know if any of us is going, yeah, I kills it in that area. All three of us, all five of them. Come on, Pastor Rod, tell them. Notice I've got no amens. But here's the deal. The beautiful thing is we all have strengths and weaknesses in, in, in all of the buckets that I'm going to cover. We all have strengths and weaknesses. And, the God, and God himself wants to make his strength perfect through our weakness. It, it, is, it, is, it is the Lord who, and, and, and so all of us, and even if you grew up in a household where, where your father was totally negligent in all these categories, he has a plan for you too. It's not like you're just like, you're, you're stuck, you're stranded, you're marooned, you're out in the sea with no hope that you can't see God clearly. No, that's not what we're saying here. But you do need to understand where these longings come from, depending on how your fathers, our fathers, set the standard or set us up to starve in these areas. Not only are we called to be producers, but we're called, look at verses 20 and 21. Look at verses 20 and 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord, 
Fathers, do not provoke children lest they become discouraged. Now, very clearly, children don't know what to obey unless somebody is setting a standard or giving out some sort of command. So fathers are implicated. They are in view even in this particular text. Well, if children are to obey and fathers are not to provoke children lest they become discouraged, then we also know that fathers are to occupy, occupy the role of prophets in the home as well. What do prophets do in the life of the children of Israel? I emphasize the word children. Notice how God's people are called the children of Israel. And those who were over them, like the Moseses and the Joshuas, were their leaders of God's children. Well, when they served as prophets over them, prophets did two things regularly. They did a lot of things, but they did two things regularly. They called the family up and they called the idols out. They called the families up and they called the idols out. This is an important function for us as fathers as we call our families up uh, and call the idols out because every single family has some kind of idol. Uh, consider, if you will, the words found here in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. This is Joshua speaking, these famous words that many of us already know. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, who they served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you currently dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is the t-shirt, the tattoo, and the bumper sticker of every godly father. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because there is always a contrasting and idolatrous narrative in the past of our families or either in the present land that we reside. There's always competing idolatrous headwinds. Now, they may not come off as the gods of Marduk or the gods of the Amorites or anything like that, but here's some, here are some of their names. Security, comfort, work, respect, education, reputation, tradition, and family tree pride. You know what I'm talking about. These are things that are not inherently bad, but they, when they become, they, they, they originally audition in our families as a guide, and then as they audition as a guide, they eventually become a god. You heard yourself. Johnsons don't do that. Madisons don't do that. That's a worship of the family tree. Now, I get it. Families do have standards, and I, I, I want to be real clear here. These things are not inherently evil. But they start off as a guide, and then they eventually become a god. They become something that we bow to. They become these surrogate standards that are very much a part of the culture. Things that we as a family bet our bottom dollar on, things that we demand, things that have become non-negotiables for our family that are not necessarily biblical non-negotiables. Innocent, benign in and of themselves, nothing wrong with having security. But man, if your children place a higher premium on having a stacked 401k and a robust retirement than they do understanding the scriptures, the guide has become a god. If your children place a higher premium in living in a private or gated neighborhood than they do on seeking the Lord as a strong tower and their refuge, the guide has become an idol god. Children have decided because mama got a master's degree, I better go get my doctorate. And they end up proverbially gnawing off their own fingers trying to achieve that standard more so than growing in Christ. The guide has officially become a god. Nothing wrong with any of these things as long as they stay in their places. 
but we cannot allow them to become gods. And so families, fathers are constantly on, in the business of calling the family up. Let's raise our standard by all means. Let's, let's achieve at our highest levels in all categories of life, right? Be it economically, academically, uh, uh, occupationally, call them up. But at the same time, calling out the idols that try to grow as weeds to choke out these legitimate family directions that we may chart for them. So that you can clearly say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Moses was also a prophet over the children of Israel, the great family, these children. And the Bible had this to say, well, God had this to say to him, to say to the children. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. Follow real, we're going to read it slow. And I want you to catch this. I don't know if you've got the underlining and highlight on the screen, but... You'll hear it in my voice. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk in the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So these principles of godliness are supposed to provide a paradigm of discipleship that every home is involved in. Now here's the deal. Every family has some form of discipleship. Everybody is being discipled by something. And do you know what is discipling you? The stuff you talk about when you sit down, when you rise up, when you lie down, the stuff that's written on your doorposts, the things that is between the front of your eyes, the things that you identify as a utmost family focus. We're all being discipled by something. The question is, is it the things that would honor God? And so as prophets in the home, fathers, we're responsible for calling the family up in a relationship with the Lord and calling out the idols that are trying to compete for that space that uniquely belongs to him. Not only this, fathers, we need to understand this. You are always, always, you and I are always willingly or unwillingly insourcing or outsourcing the discipleship of our family. Always. Now, what do I mean by that? If you take your hands off the steering wheel, you have, whether you chose to do it or not, you are either willingly or unwillingly outsourcing the discipleship of your family to me. Now, hopefully that's not a bad thing, but here's the weakness that I have in discipling your family. I can give you funny illustrations, 40 minutes of sweaty content, but I cannot contextualize these principles against the, lands, the social landscape of your household and the unique strengths and weaknesses of your neighborhood and your kids and your wife. You understand? So I'm glad to participate in the discipleship, but you cannot outsource their discipleship to me or to Pastor Ryan or to the leaders of our children's church or youth, youth department. You can't outsource it. We gladly participate. Now, when it comes to insourcing, that means that you take this material that you may not be able to craft yourself. You say, you know what, Pastor, I, I, I don't know the Bible like you, man. All right, so then you insource. You take what we teach and you drill it down, but you give it familial context in your household. But you don't let anything that I teach or preach just be a standalone. You don't just let it drop here. Take it home, insource it, do whatever you do. But we are always insourcing or outsourcing something. Willingly or unwillingly. If you're not hands-on, somebody is. And so, be careful as a prophet of your household to faithfully 
in-source or outsource, whatever you're going to do, make sure that you are endorsing, you sign off on, and you have approved and sniffed out the information that's making it into the hearts of your people, that's governing and shaping the way they think when they sit down, when they rise up, the stuff that's always on their hearts and minds. Well, here's the next one. As we skip down to verses, as you read down through verses uh, 22 through chapter 4, the Lord then tells uh, or the Lord through the Apostle Paul then tells people in a household with the bond services, okay, okay, obey those that are uh, your earthly masters, not with eye service, not be people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. You've already heard that. Then we move down to verse uh, chapter 4, and it says, Masters, treat your bond service justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Some of your Bibles will read, give to, give to your bond service justly and fairly. Now, I want you to follow this very carefully. I need you to go back in time. I need you to go back in history with me for just a second. Because the church has no socioeconomic divisions, masters and bond servants, bosses and followers and employees are sitting on the same pew. James overtly, uh, 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 overtly called out any church that would say to this person not wearing nice clothes, oh, you go sit there at my footstool and another person wearing a costly garment, you come sit up front and get the best seats. The churches were always under this reworking of division to make sure that people of all types were in there hearing the gospel and understanding that they are all equally brothers and sisters in Christ. So imagine, if you will, when the house call goes out, the bond service and the masters have to kind of turn over and look at each other. Yeah, man, give me what is just and fair. Treat me like the Bible says, treat me. And the kids are watching too. The kids are watching too. And so well, the, 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 how we give to those in our lives as a provider, this is our fourth picture, our fourth portion, how we give, how we provide, in the way that we are, when we provide, in the way that we provide, we are giving our family a foretaste of how God operates. Because we've told our family that these letters are from the Apostle Paul, which means he's one of God's designates. That this is God's man speaking God's words. And so now the family is connecting the dots between how dad does all these things found in this letter. And therefore, the way he provides is painting a picture for, for how God does business. No verse more robustly paints this picture than this one in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if, if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? We as providers are providing a foretaste of how God gives. Now I want us to be very careful and hear this. In all of these roles, we are providing some sort of foretaste of how the father moves, the heavenly father. Um, the most robust and vivid pictures of authority, romance, relationship, how to treat others of different types of social classes are being learned intentionally and unintentionally by those who are watching how we live and move. If you're coming home from work regularly besmirching the names of your bosses or your coworkers, oh yeah, you're setting a standard or perhaps a starvation. If you're coming home and, and you're regularly besmirching the name of various other leadership, you like that. I, we'll talk about it when we get home. Uh, regularly, regularly, 
regularly, if, if, if you come home and are just unpacking just goo gobs of complaints uh, about what happens at work and it never kind of ties the knot in a way that says, okay, I'm handing this thing over to the Lord, man, we're creating a standard. We're creating a starvation. What are you giving? What are you providing? If in the way that you provide in the most mundane and material way, if you just give because your children overwhelm you with pressure or because you're, or, or, or those of members of your household just constantly ask, if you give without heart and forethought as to how these things that are being given will hurt them or help them, grow them up in Christ or cause them to give glory to God or equip them to become a better version of themselves, if you're just giving all the time, I'm not saying don't spoil your pet. Love your people lavishly. But make sure that in how are you loving them lavishly that you wonder, how am I setting them up in their prayer lives and how they will approach God? Will my family ultimately get angry with God because he didn't? I know he's the God who can do everything, but that doesn't mean that he will give anything. Are we setting our families up for that kind of idea in the way that we provide? Fathers, I say this, and all of you, not just fathers, the beautiful thing about this passage is whether you are or were the worst priest ever in your home, the worst prophet, the worst producer, or the worst provider. Here's the beautiful thing about it. The brokenness of our respective homes really just kind of create the backdrop against which God wants us to know him as a father. You see, it is, it is, it is, if you did this well, Hopefully, you'd be just like those people at the airport with those batons bringing the planes in. All you're trying to do is just get the family to go in a direction that they really need to go. You're not trying to get any of the glory. You're just saying, yeah, thank you, family. Come on. Take that momentum that way. Right? If you did it well. And if you didn't do it well, don't sit here in grief and regret. Know this. Begin to be a priest now. Pray for those who you didn't care for well. Pray for them now. Intercede for them with great compassion now. You see, because in the gospel... We are officially introduced to God as not just the awesome and wonderful and incredible, powerful boss of the universe, but we're introduced in the gospel to him as a father. It is only on the premise of our response to the gospel that we can say, our father who art in heaven. It is only on that premise that, that, that when we respond to the gospel, even if our father wasn't a good priest, we are officially introducing the gospel to Jesus as the high priest, the best priest. Even if you as a father or your father didn't paint the best picture of how to love a mother or how to treat children, even if your father didn't paint that best picture, in Christ, you've got a wonderful portrait in how he loves those who place faith in him and how he loved the church, willing to die for it and care for it. Even if you as a father, you were not a great, you weren't a great prophet. You didn't call anything out. You didn't even call anybody up. You just sat on the, on the sofa with the remote. And you called people to come give you some new batteries when you got tired of hitting the back of the remote because it wouldn't change the channel. Even if you were that kind of dad, the Bible says, Jesus, I'll be a prophet. I'll come into your life. I'll tell you the truth. I'll call you up. I'll let you know you are a sinner. And separate from me, you have no ability to call God a father. But there's hope. Don't stop there. That's not the end of the sentence. I want you to know Christ as your joint heir. I want you to know him as a father. I want us to be family. This is what, this is what the gospel declares. But the gospel also is a great provision. 
It is God saying, listen, this is given for you. You didn't ask for it, but it's more than you could ever receive. The gospel is God providing, giving his most and his absolute best. How do you quantify the givings of someone that has everything to give and there's nothing beyond their reach? God managed to do it because he gave his only begotten son. The best and the most that God has to offer is found in the gospel first and foremost and ultimately. And so regardless of how this message has left you feeling about the priest, the prophet, the portrait painter, or even the provider, there's still hope for you because that longing that you have, aim it at the cross. Aim it at the Christ and let God the Father fill in those blanks. You might be shaking your boots saying, I'll never be able to be a good father. Uh-uh. The Bible says that where you and I have great weakness, this is the absolute place. This is the, this is the pivotal point. This is the point where God wants to show himself the strongest so that you have that great testimony of, man, you know what? I didn't grow up with a great dad, but man, I got introduced to a great dad through the gospel. And now by his power and through his wisdom, I'm able to be a great priest. I'm able to be a great prophet, a great producer in my household and a great provider because of the example of scripture, even when I didn't have it in the example of culture. Ladies and gentlemen, we need our fathers. We need them. We need them to be encouraged. We need them to be supported. We need them to be even corrected. We need them to be robustly on the front line. The church is experiencing a great deficit of attendance, not gospel hope, like the church in general. Why? Because discipleship, is. there's not a premium place on discipleship in the home. The faith is being contextualized exclusively right here. And if it doesn't have relevance here and no one is showing what that stuff looks like against the backdrop of daily life, it's the role, it's fathers. We can fix. We can be a part of what's happening with the great drop-off in the Western church. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, ah, I don't want to race past that. Thank you for allowing me to call you Father. I can call you Father, not because that's how I got taught to pray as a little child memorizing Matthew 6, oh God, but I call you Father because you introduced me by your grace to your son, Jesus. I call you Father because your spirit lives inside me. And I pray, oh God, for all of those who call you Father, that you will grab hold of our hearts and help us, Lord God, to have a brand new standard by which we evaluate ourselves if we're fathers or by which we evaluate our world and those around us who would call themselves fathers. May we be people who would support and celebrate, call up and even call out fathers regardless of where they are on the spectrum. Strengthen us, oh God, in these four portraits so that we can do right by these families that you've all allowed us to live, allowed us to lead. This is our earnest prayer. I pray also, Lord God, for the person that who right now they're struggling in their relationship with you because they didn't have a very robust fatherly imprint. I pray that your grace will, Lord God, invade their lives and they would feel not alienated, but they would feel deeply invited to embrace the God of heaven. It's not just the God of heaven, but now the Father who is in heaven. Help us to see you more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.